Okay, so welcome to our study of Bacon's New Atlantis. Um, for the next couple sessions as well, or just for the sessions on Bacon's New Atlantis, some honors colloquium students uh, will be joining us. So, welcome to all of you. Um, so let's, uh, how about I'll offer, yeah, just a kind of basic introduction on Bacon or situating him um, within the history of political philosophy that we've studied in the course so far, or at least um, position him to what we've looked at recently. Um, and then I'll bring out three main questions that I think that we can approach the text with or that we can kind of think on or anchor our study to. Um, so in a sense, Bacon picks up right where we left off while studying Machiavelli. For, in chapter 25 of The Prince, we saw Machiavelli point out uh, that we have to keep an eye on the future and that through his metaphor of setting up dikes and dams in order to prepare for future floods, he seemed to indicate that technology might play a big role in the eventual conquest of nature. If we might say, then, that Machiavelli is the founder of modernity, inasmuch as he explicitly breaks with both the classical and biblical traditions, we might then say that Bacon launches a kind of the technology wing, if you will, of this project, whereas maybe we might say that Locke launches the sort of commercial wing of the project. Um, so we can kind of see Bacon in many ways as kind of continuing or sharpening or making more precise the same project that Machiavelli was already interested in, or carrying it a little bit further, so to speak. Now, three main questions that I want to approach a new Atlantis with are the following. The first question, who is the narrator? And does he change over time or gain some kind of education? Is he different at the end of the book or not? So we want to try to figure out who is the person telling us the story. It may or may not be the case that Bacon entirely agrees with the narrator, um, but at any rate, we want to understand how the narrator sees the world. We want to see how it looks to him. Okay. Our second question. Is the city, Ben Salam, that is presented here a utopia or a dystopia? Is this the kind of city that we ought to strive um, to make our own? Or is this something that we should you know, fearfully avoid at all costs? Um, and, and another way to think about the question is, how does Bacon understand the city? Does Bacon himself see it as a utopia or a dystopia? Um, it's not impossible for a thinker to present a city or a utopia in order to show the limits of political life or show that there are certain problems that it seemingly no political community can solve. So it might be the case that Bacon um, is aware of some deficiencies of his political regime. We'll have to um, look at that as we go. Um, or he might recommend it as the best, um, but that's something we'll have to pay attention to. Um, now, a third question that I want to focus on as we move through the text, um, or just something to kind of keep our eyes on, is what is the role of concealment in the story? Um, are there any secrets in Ben Salam? And another way of thinking about concealment is why is Ben Salam isolating itself from the rest of the world? Um, I think we'll see a couple instances, not quite this time, but especially at the beginning of the next session, um, where we see a great deal of concealment um, on behalf of the rulers or hiding certain things from the people. So we have to ask, um, why do they conceal things? Is it a good thing to conceal certain things from the political community by the rulers? Um, or is that a bad idea? Okay, so those will be our three main questions that we have in mind. Okay, so let's turn to the text itself um, and start with the first page of New Atlantis. Uh, now, okay, so we start out with some sailors out at sea um, who are lost at sea, struggling all of a sudden. 
Why do you think in a story about a technological utopia, uh, why would it begin like this? Why would it begin with sailors out at sea at the mercy of the winds? Well, there's a few possibilities. Um, it seems like one might be uh, that it could be showing how vulnerable humans can be um, totally at the mercy of nature and of fortune, not in control of what's going to happen to them. And two, um, a lot of times we see ships or boats as a kind of metaphor for political communities. So in Plato's Republic, um, there's the famous ship of state example that Socrates gives to Adiamantus, um, where he tries to think about the different positions of people on the ship and how they relate to political life. So it may be that Bacon, too, is kind of revisioning or changing the ship of state, so to speak. Um, and he might be using this boat out at sea that's sort of lost as a metaphor for political life before it gains sufficient technological development or some kind of scientific rule. Okay, so let's look at page 63. Now, I know that the page numbers might be a little mixed up depending on whether you wound up with the first edition or the second edition um, that's edited by Jerry Weinberger. Um, I happen to have the second edition. It seems like Amazon has been somewhat capricious and sent you either of them. The translation is um, just the same, but the page numbers are off, so I apologize uh, if you have the first edition and it's a little harder to follow. But at any rate, we're looking at the first page um, of our story. So let's move a little way down. So they find themselves in a bad spot. So let's look halfway down the page. So that, quote, so that finding ourselves in the midst of the greatest wilderness of waters in the world without victual, we gave ourselves for lost men and prepared for death. Okay, so does the idea of preparing for death, is that a line that echoes from anything we might have read before? We haven't read it in our class, but um, there's a line in Plato's Phaedo where Socrates says that philosophy is preparing or learning how to die. Um, now, it's a striking statement that he makes, um, and one way to interpret it might be to say that death is an inevitable feature of human life that cannot be otherwise. It may be that philosophy consists of, in the strictest sense, discovering necessities that cannot be otherwise, and then reconciling ourselves to those things, especially to those things which might be painful or which we, or which we don't want to admit are true. So it's kind of interesting that Bacon brings this lineup, or that this is, in a sense, one of the first things that our uh, narrator tells us about what the sailors were doing. That it's a kind of, at least, pointer back, potentially, um, to philosophy. But this is juxtaposed by what he says uh, right after that, and the exact you know words coming after it. He says, quote, Yet we did lift up our hearts and voices to God above, who showeth, who showeth his wonders in the deep, beseeching him of his mercy, that as in the beginning he discovered the face of the deep and brought forth dry land, so he would now discover lands to us, that we might not perish. Okay, so this line that comes immediately after the line about preparing to die is kind of striking, um, especially in the way that it seems to be much different. Um, that is, they pray to God to save them, to show them dry land. Um, and the, the reference is to Genesis, so it's almost kind of in a certain sense asking for the kind of miracle of maybe even create some land, God, okay? Um, almost seems to be what they're asking. But it seems in that way that asking to be saved, and especially to be saved in this life before death, um, but not necessarily saved in the next, seems to be the opposite of preparing for death. Rather, it seems like a kind of clinging to life. I wonder then if the way that these two lines can be compared to each other 
um, sets up two sort of alternative paths by which we might read the story, or two different ways to understand the character of the narrator. At any rate, I've read different scholarly interpretations, one that largely supports the first reading and the one that supports the second. So let me um, suggest what these two different paths might look like. Now, on one hand, it could be that the narrator is a kind of philosophic type. Um, and so we might see, in a certain sense, him not develop that much over the story, but just accommodate himself to the circumstances and just learn as much as he can. Um, now, on the other hand, we might see a, sec a second or different path, that he's religious or pious, but in a kind of minimal or half-hearted way, where he doesn't always think about God in his everyday life, except when it comes to emergency situations. All of a sudden, that's when the need for God comes to be. But if, his, if or to the extent that his piety is kind of half-hearted, we might see that in Ben Salam, um, that, or that we might see the technology in Ben Salam start to take the place of God in the way that it provides. I'll point out examples of that even in today's reading, but we'll see more maybe explicit statements of this um, later in the text. Okay, so when they're greeted, um, we notice that the people of Ben Salam have a very tight control over their border. Um, or borders. That is, they don't even initially allow or admit that the sailors could be um, put on land. Rather, they say, don't come ashore just yet. Something else we notice as the ship arrives is that the narrator is not the captain of the ship. Uh, but you'll notice that by the end of the story, he's selected um, sort of preeminently amongst all of his comrades to learn the secrets of Ben Salam. So we'll have to pay attention to how he ascends to that role over and against the captain. Um, now, if you look at the bottom of 65, you see a very fancy description of the man who comes on the ship to sort of tell them that they might be able to come to land. Um, in Benslam, it seems that it's a very hierarchical society. And one of the first ways in which we see um, that hierarchy show itself is the way in which clothing is used to help signify rank um, or things like that. So also, I guess, like as we go through the story, another way to kind of um, get a foothold into it is that we can kind of be anthropologists in a way and just try to see, like, what kind of people are we looking at when we come to see Ben Salam? What is their way of life? What does their um, culture, so to speak, look like? Okay, so let's go to the next page, the middle of 66. There the sailors are asked if they are Christians, to which they say yes, not fearing to answer that way, having seen a cross on a piece of Ben Salam parchment moments before, or a little bit earlier. I guess what seems striking to me there, in a sense, is that these aren't the kind of Christians who are going to admit, you know, I'm Christian at any cost. These guys aren't going to be martyrs. Um, the fact that they sort of say, like, well, we saw them have crosses on their stuff earlier, therefore we're willing to admit that we're Christians now, means that they're paying attention to the political context and that they're more interested in their own advantage in a way than they are sort of in a totally adhering to Christian principle or something like that. Um, so they're paying attention to that, and since it's politically advantageous for them to admit their Christianity, they do so. Um, at any rate, then, we see that the sailors are put into a kind of quarantine, um, which might remind you of today um, in the United States um, and, and in many other places. Um, at any rate... We also maybe get an indication here, and we'll see many later as well, that the Ben-Solomites Sol ben uh, are very concerned with their health. Um, they really don't want to be near um, these sort of dirty and sick sailors, and they want to make sure that the disease goes away before they let them kind of come um, into their political community.
Now, uh, in order to get another sort of like big uh, piece of evidence about what kind of person the narrator is, let's look at page 69 where he makes his first kind of long speech. And we might say that this is a kind of place where he begins to assert his authority. Um, so let's read that. My dear friends, let us know ourselves and how it standeth with us. We are men cast on land, as Jonas was out of the whale's belly, when we were as buried in the deep, and now we are on land. We are but between death and life, for we are beyond both the old world and the new, and whether ever we shall see Europe, God only knoweth. It is a kind of miracle hath brought us hither, and and it must be little less that shall bring us hence. Therefore, in regard of our deliverance past, and our danger present and to come, let us look up to God, and every man reform his own ways. Besides, we are come here amongst a Christian people, full of piety and humanity. Let us not bring that confusion of face upon ourselves, as to show our vices or unworthiness before them. Yet there is more. For they have by commandment, though in form of courtesy, cloistered us within these walls for three days, who knoweth whether it be not to take some taste of our manners and conditions, and if they find them bad, to banish us straightways, if good, to give us further time. For these men that they have given us for attendance may withal have an eye upon us. Therefore, for God's love, and as we love the wheel of our souls and bodies, let us so behave ourselves as we may be at peace with God and may find grace in the eyes of this people. Okay, so let's try to pull out some of the interesting things from the speech. I don't think I'd be able to pull out all of them, but um, there's quite a few that I'd like to bring to your attention. Um, one of the first things he says in the speech is, let us know ourselves. So earlier we saw him talk about preparing for death, a kind of famous line of Socrates. Um, and also now he says, let us know ourselves. Another famous line of Socrates. So that could be another indication that this is a kind of philosophic person, but it's hard to say. Nonetheless, we can at least say this. He's politically prudent. Um, we see that, they are, uh, that the sailors, uh, he and the sailors are in a precarious position. They are completely at the mercy of their guests. They're outnumbered. Um, it seems that these people have greater technological capacity, and they don't have their own food. So if they get kicked out of Bensalon, they're done. Um, so he says, in light of this political situation, all right, everyone, <laughs> act well. Act like everything's normal, like we're good people. Um, to use his own words, he says, we have to reform our ways. I don't know. Is this an indication that, the sailor, that this group of sailors aren't the nicest guys? It's hard to say. But this is a speech that, <laughs> that the narrator felt he had to make so he must have at least been aware of the possibility that some of them might not um, behave themselves um, under these circumstances. Um, and he points out that this quarantine might be a test, which means that he doesn't think that the Ben um aren't above using surveillance on them. Now, however this may be, um, they succeed as far as how they do during the quarantine. And a priest comes to speak with them. The time that they're allowed to stay is extended. Um, and something else we see that by the fact that a priest comes to speak to them about matters of the state is that, at least on the face of it, or how it seems now, there is no separation of church or state in Ben Salon. 
some might be another anthropological point of interest in a way. Um, now, one thing that they're told not to do is don't go one and a half miles or a Koran away from town. Um, as the narrator points out, this is they call this a commandment on page 72. What's significant about calling this a commandment? Well, uh, we've seen already that um, uh, Bacon has called our attention to a number of biblical passages, and indeed has called our attention to Genesis already. So we might be wondering if this is a kind of Garden of Eden. That is to say that Ben Salam represents a kind of paradise. Um, and as it happens on page 72, um, and going into the next page on 73, uh, the narrator says that they call it, quote, a picture of our salvation in heaven. Goodness, that must be a pretty amazing town that they're in, if that's the case. Um, but this might point something out to us. That uh, it may be that a goal of modern political philosophy is to actualize or guarantee the promise of the Bible on earth without God's help. Um, that instead of having to have faith and having life after death, what if it's possible through human technology or accomplishment to have life on earth forever? And we'll see that the extension of life is something that people in Benson are very interested in as we go through the text. Um, but I think this is a nice like sort of cutting off point because uh, the next bit of reading that we have is the priest sort of relating the character of Ben Salam, or kind of telling a story about how Christianity found its way to this isolated place. Um, so we can kind of split up the story um, into the different various accounts the characters give of the way of life of Ben Salam. So next time, we'll cover the priest's account of the way that Ben Salam is. All right, great.